This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. Welcome to our special post-event coverage from our Living with Wildlife conference in Toronto. Listen through and hear from some of our favorite speakers and what they had to say about living with wildlife. Erin McCants of the City of Winnipeg. I just wanted to start today uh, a bit. Uh, I've done so much uh, work on wildlife in urban areas that I, I wanted to start a bit and just sort of introduce why are we why are we having these conversations now? These are relatively new conversations, and urban wildlife management is certainly uh, relatively new in nature. We were really sort of urban or rural wildlife managers. And so what's going on? What's with the shift? And right now, we currently have about 80% of Canadians that reside in urban space. And this is a real change that's happened over the last 50, 60, 70 years. We used to be primarily a rural agricultural society. And so as we start using the landscape differently and developing the landscape differently, this is going to have implications for a variety of wildlife species and implications for biodiversity overall. So what ends up happening is we now actually, has, as people started to move into that urban center, um, a lot of the noise, the pollution, uh, the, the sounds that were coming out of those factories that at the time where people were really moving into those cities, people started to disperse um, to that urban rural fringe area, maybe in a connection, trying to reconnect with nature in some way, maybe just to have a bigger backyard. But what ended up happening is we started getting these suburbs that developed. And we now have more uh, people in the United States of America that live in suburbs than they do in urban centers themselves. And so what we get is what uh, Oliver Gillum calls a limitless city. We get a suburb that connects to another suburb, connects to another suburb. So really, all the way from Chicago to LA, we have developed urbanized spaces. So I'm going to turn now and talk specifically about the species I'm going to talk about today, and that's white-tailed deer. How do white-tailed deer uh, thrive within these urban developed environments? And, and there's a number of reasons why they do so well. Um, white-tailed deer not only uh, have found a way to adapt to urban environments, but they actually thrive within them. And there's a few reasons for that. One, white-tailed deer are a generalist species. So they have the ability, they eat well over 600 different uh, known species of plants. Um, and now in many cities, uh, as I think Donna mentioned, they eat many other things other than plants, uh, lasagna and whatnot. Um, so urban centers provide them not only with um, natural uh, food sources, but also uh, human-supplemented food sources. And so that what, what ends up happening is that helps uh, that animal with uh, body weight as they go into, in my city, winter. Um, so white-tailed deer are a non-native species to the city of Winnipeg and to Manitoba. They moved up with agriculture and with development. And so as they move into these areas, we would hope or think, uh, and why I say hope is because it helps manage the population from a natural perspective, but we would hope that weather overwintering would have an impact on the population and bring that population back into a check and balance. But what ends up happening is because there's so many human supplemented food sources and they are, are um, offered so many food sources within urban spaces, they end up going into that winter with, with a better body condition. So not only are they now surviving through uh, a winter season where perhaps maybe uh, without that human supplemented food source they may not but they're also likely to give birth to not only one um, possibly two and in some cases three uh, offspring every year so uh, that's the other reason uh, why we end up seeing a high abundance of white-tailed deer numbers very quickly is, is uh, over 90% of white-tailed deer 
will be bred in a year. They go into estrus twice. So if they haven't been bred in the first estrus, they will uh, likely be bred in the second estrus. And then if they are provided with uh, good food sources, they can have uh, twins and triplets. So we get this very, per, uh, very uh, uh, productive population uh, in addition to the fact that they have very little predators within an urban center. Um, we have a, a higher um, tolerance level, if you will, for the big brown uh, eyes of those white-tailed deer than we do with predators. There's a high level of perceived risk there. So when predators are identified, they're often quickly removed. Um, and so what ends up happening is, again, we've modified a natural check and balance system. Okay. Second to that, we've got firearm discharge laws within urban centers, and so deer are quite savvy, and they recognize the fact that they have a lack of the human predator, if you will, and so they've got refuge within an urban environment. So looking back at that first quantitative survey that I conducted, uh, this dates back now to about 2008. All I wanted to show here, this, this represents from scientific, um, the, the way the methodology was laid out, that it's representative of the greater Winnipeg area population. And what came out of this is simply that at this time, when I surveyed the greater Winnipeg area population, 76% of the individuals in that city said they overall enjoy having deer within their community, despite that 43% of them said that they do worry about some of that conflict. Overall, 76% of them indicated that they do enjoy having deer. And when I started asking about some of the different management strategies that are available to us, and there's, there's a whole slew of them that are out there, non-lethal methods of management ranked really high at that point in time. There was real opposition to lethal methods of management in the greater Winnipeg area. And what comes out of that? And I asked this question in a variety of different ways, just to make sure that we were getting the answers out. Um, what happens here is we've got a whole lot of conflict, We've got an increasing population, and we've got a very serious issue with deer vehicle collision. And now we've got a community saying we're not really on board with lethal methods of management. So what do we as wildlife managers do with that? And so certainly it challenged us to go out and to find out a little bit more about our urban deer population, get a little bit more information. Very hard to manage something when you don't have a full picture of what's going on. And so we did conduct that uh, collaring program. And so animals, I won't go into the methodology here for time, but basically they were physically immobilized using clover box tracks um, and collars replaced. Uh, I think I ended up handling close to 50 animals in the city of Winnipeg and uh, even more in Riding Mountain National Park. And so those animals are physically immobilized physically mobilized, the collar is placed on, and then they're released. What comes out of that is it allows us the opportunity to see where are these animals on the landscape. So these GPS collars that range about $3,500, the collar that I use, takes a satellite latitude and longitude location every two hours. It then sends me that information by cellular phone text message. So I get a very real-time uh, view of where these animals are. So technology has uh, advantages and disadvantages, um, but certainly uh, this is the technology in terms of animal tracking is... is um, improving uh, every day. And so what I've done here is I've taken those animals, looked at each individual, but also looked at the cohort, uh, urban cohort in comparison to that rural cohort. And what came out of that very quickly is there are some very big differences. So animals that are residing within urban space are behaving, acting, using habitat very differently than they would be in a larger unfragmented block of habitat that's characterized by low human population density. So right away I started to see these differences. And this is an image which shows you home range size. So you can see where the animal lives its life is a whole lot bigger in a natural environment than it is in an, in an urban environment. So it doesn't take long for us to ask the question, well, why? What's going on that these animals are residing in such close spaces? And so I take uh, just one example to show you today. This is a collared female 
Um, it is uh, an animal that over this winter had a home range size of 1.7 kilometers squared, which is very, very small for a white-tailed deer. And I just wanted to show you, I, I take each animal and I, I kind of hone in on where that animal was and look at what that animal was doing. And, and that black uh, there is just showing you the core. So how many times I'm picking up on that location at that uh, geographic uh, position um, on the map and seeing what is at that location, what is driving that animal to that location. And you can see that uh, just a whole mess of lines, that's the animal's path. So that's the movement between one G, uh, GPS fix to another. Now that's representing a straight line. It's often uh, obviously likely not a straight line, but that's the best we can do with our technology. But what it's showing there is simply that that animal is going across that road. That's a primary roadway. It's a four-lane roadway, and it's going across that road multiple times a day playing Russian roulette um, in its habitual pattern. Okay, so white-tailed deer in the city of Winnipeg, I can tell you from the ones that I collared are very habitual. They've got a very uh, clear routine. And so we are now uh, dealing with a situation where we've got an animal crossing that roadway multiple times a day. So what is it? So what I did is I took uh, the information coming out of the animal off of that collar. I looked at the highest density of uh, square meter, honed in on what property that was, and I approached that uh, residential owner. Um, in all my cases, they were residential properties. So I honed in on that residential owner and asked them if they'd sit down and engage in a qualitative interview with me. I wanted to look at what was it that was drawing that animal to that location multiple times a day. And I don't think it's any shock uh, to any of us that uh, what was drawing them to that location multiple times a day was an artificial food source. In 100% of the cases, it was an artificial food source. And certainly we're talking about the city of Winnipeg. This is uh, big business. Um, and by that, I mean um, it comes from, um, I believe in all cases, uh, very good intentions. Um, but these individuals are feeding upwards of 30 animals per day. And so you're getting a massive feeding operation that's happening. And this is in uh, the heart of residential space within the city of Winnipeg. So what ends up happening here is there's, with uh, coexistence comes responsibility. One of the things that came through really important out of that research is there was obviously, it, it didn't take much to connect the dots here in terms of having um, uh, um, connectivity between we have a feed site, we have high deer density, and we have high uh, deer vehicle collisions. And so there's a, 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 a now a positive correlation that's been put in place. And while to all of us that might seem very simple, it might have been like one plus one equals two, uh, it was important for us from a scientific perspective to link that through a methodology and, and, um, and, uh, and, a, and a scientific study so that we now can go forward to the powers that be and say we now have it before us and we have a responsibility to our community to move forward with management. So overall, uh, I think that we have a long way to go, uh, certainly in my uh, jurisdiction in the Greater Winnipeg area. As I mentioned, we are in an information gathering pocket of time, um, which is uh, in some ways uh, a really great way of saying um, politically this is sticky and I'm not sure how to handle it. Um, so we are, we're working on it. Um, and. Um, uh, I'm hoping that we're going to move in a direction where we'll start to put some management on the landscape because if we don't, what I believe is happening from my seven years of walking these neighborhoods is, is people are taking management into their own hands and, and that is uh, where we, we not only have the existing challenges but we end up with a, a whole slew of more challenges. So lots of work yet to be done. Um, but it's certainly going to call on us uh, as managers, as biologists, as, uh, um, as organization leaders um, to make sure that we're being inter interdisciplinary in nature. We really have to look at this problem uh, a little bit more broad in scope than, than we might have traditionally. <laughs> Questions?
We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more highlights from our 2014 Living with Wildlife Conference. Brad Gates of Gates AAA Wildlife Control. Thank you. I've been in the field of uh, wildlife control for over 30 years now. I've seen my share of raccoons, squirrels, skunks, birds breaking into houses. And I wouldn't be in business 30 years if I didn't figure out how to keep them out. Um, and it took some trial and error. Day one, we didn't really know exactly how to do it and how to do it effectively to have a long-lasting solution. But over time, and there are new developments, in, and we'll talk about these in the building industry, that are creating new challenges for us and making it easier for wildlife to get into homes. Um, so we'll start the presentation. When an animal looks at a neighborhood such as this, it sees one huge buffet. The first house probably has a bird feeder in the backyard, so there's a snack for a raccoon, a meal for a squirrel. The second house is feeding their cat in the back balcony. The third house has a green bin at the side door, and that green bin is outside because it stinks too much to stay inside, and the raccoons have figured to open that up, and that, if the raccoon pops open that green bin, he's got a meal that would last him a week. And the third house is the real bonus house. That's the house that has the person that's feeding the raccoons and squirrels and skunks. So the only, sorry, the only disadvantage in this neighborhood, and in almost every neighborhood we deal with, is very few homeowners take it upon themselves to animal-proof a house. So also when a raccoon or a squirrel looks at this neighborhood, 
you see a vacancy sign on every front lawn. Den sites are abundant, and houses, whether they're old or new, are all creating opportunities for animals to break in. And both raccoons or squirrels, in my mind, are mini home inspectors. They will find, if you have a flaw on your roof that you would never find on your own, an animal will find it. And we'll talk about a lot of those today. Now there is good animal proofing and there is bad animal proofing. This is a homeowner's attempt to keep a skunk out from under their porch. This obviously took a few hours and a few dollars in plastic forks and knives. But their idea behind this was the skunk would come out from under the porch and they had the trap set up with baited with sardines. So if it was inside the, the porch, it would actually get caught. And if it was already out at the time they set all this up, it wouldn't dare to cross those plastic forks. <laughs> Some other types of animal proofing that homeowners take on and even our competition can be downright dangerous. This is an attempt of a homeowner to keep a bird out of a dryer vent. This situation is dangerous because dryer vents are meant to expel the lint from the clothes. And when you put something in the way of that, the lint will back up. Research shows the number one reason for house fires in all of Canada are dryer fires. Dryers must be able to expel the heat in order for the motor to stay cool. And if you can't expel the heat because of a buildup of lint, you'll actually cause the motor to overheat and a fire to, to occur. So there are certainly do's and don'ts with wildlife control, or wildlife prevention. Not all houses are built the same, and many houses are built such as this one. The roof board that the shingles are attached to, and the fascia board that the eaves troughs attached to, should overlap if the house was built properly. If we look closely here, we can see there's a space between these two boards. And any time an animal can get its nose into that space, it will have a free edge of wood to chew on. And as it is able to chew, it may take a week, it might go back there for an hour at a time, or it may do it in one night. But as long as there's a structural flaw at the roof edge, your chances of having a wildlife problem in the long term is pretty good. When we do inspections for animal entries, even though what the customer is describing to us is definite squirrel behavior, squirrel activity in the attic, it's not always easy for us to, to find a point of entry. Um, you're not seeing the broken shingles, you're not seeing an obvious opening, and in this particular case, we actually went back to the house twice to find the point of entry. So the next slide, I removed this corner shingle to show you the actual point of entry. And this was a red squirrel. This hole is about the size of a golf ball. So it's not always easy to identify um, where the structural flaw might be that they will exploit. So I th would think even if I had a call out to animal proof this house before they had wildlife, that situation may have been overlooked. I'm a true believer if you take care of the roof of your house, the rest of the house tends to take care of itself, not with respect necessarily with animals not being able to get back in, but with the rotten wood on the eaves trough, um, water damage inside, mold problems, all of that 
you should really pay close attention to what's going on on your roof and, and get it. This particular uh, roof should have been probably replaced seven to ten years prior to this picture be being taken. And one of the situations that we see, now you would look at this and say, how in the world could you have prevented that? Because it's in the middle of the roof. Who would have anticipated? There was no structure there before. A raccoon simply came up, started picking at the shingles that were flat as the shingles around it and eventually got to the wood underneath, broke it apart, and got inside. On close inspection of that hole, and you can actually see the gray staining to the right of that hole, water had been leaking through the roof for some time. Maybe on a previous roof, maybe the homeowner didn't replace the roof in time on the previous, uh, when the previous roof was on. They re-shingled over a weakness in the, in the roof structure. Raccoons have an amazing ability to detect rot, and it doesn't matter where it is, I guess they smell it, and then eventually they uh, they will dig away at it until they get inside. I gotta love roofers in the years 2014 and, and back probably the last four or five years because they've gone away from the metal roof fence. And the metal roof fence were still, raccoons and squirrels are still able to get through them, but they've gone to a plastic roof fence, which is totally easy for any animal to get in and usually within minutes. So they've created a lot of business for me in, in installing these gray or these plastic uh, roof fence. God bless their hearts. The next, we're almost getting to the end here. The next um, point of entry that uh, is very common on rooftops is whenever you have a side split or a back split where two roofs overlap, and the soffit of the upper roof has to terminate somewhere, and it terminates generally at the roof. So we're looking up at the eaves trough and soffit area. I want to show you a video of a raccoon coming out of this uh, soft bed. She's coming out to get one of her babies. build that actual structure when they first construct the house, they very rarely attach that aluminum because it's such a tight space. They can't get in there with screws or hammers to actually get the aluminum tight. And raccoons have learned that if they get into that space and they can stand on the roof below, they can either bend the metal out of, out of the way or simply use it as a trap door as you saw in the video. And although not always pretty, the only way to really prevent animals from getting into these areas is to screen the soffit for a fairly decent length, because if the raccoon's going to stand on the roof and, and reach up, you don't want them to be able to manipulate the aluminum. You want them to be grabbing onto our screen. So that is how we keep them out of those areas. And similar to where we talked about skunks getting under a deck, you have to do the whole perimeter of the deck. If there are structures similar to this on the roof, like there's maybe two or three structures that are identical to this, they all need to be screened. Even if the animal's not using them, and if there's one roof fence that the animals are using, you need to do all the roof fence, because they'll simply go to the next one. Chimneys are often um, a great spot for raccoons. It resembles a hollow tree in the wild for them. But they also become danger zones for squirrels and birds, because when they fall down these open chimneys, they, unless the homeowner recognizes that there is something in the chimney, they will die of starvation. A bird needs to be able to fly forward in order to fly up. It can't fly straight up the chimney. 
In this case, a squirrel may be able to climb this brickwork to get out, but often they're clay lined and it's very smooth, so they can't make the, uh, the trip. So we install, again, using the same screen, a screen enclosure. Um, it gets crimped to the clay piece so that, uh, so that it cannot be pulled off by an animal. So an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This poor raccoon, in the middle of the night, I think it was 2 o'clock in the morning, decided to go through the princess's doggy door. You can see the name tag on the door. Managed to get into the big bag of dog not just the, the bowl with the dog food. He got the big bag of dog food and obviously ate too much to get himself back out the door. <laughs> so we had to go again at 2 o'clock in the morning, completely dismantle the door and, uh, and let the raccoon go. You can see how embarrassed he is. <laughs> um, so basically sums up my presentation. If you're interested in this type of stuff, we're on Facebook, Twitter, um, and YouTube. We have videos all over the place. Um, I invite you to uh, like us, follow us, or subscribe to us. And even on our uh, web website, we also have videos. Our adventures are never-ending, and they're rarely are they ever the same. So it's, it's, it's fun. I love my job. I am very fortunate to do what I do, and thank you for listening. More presentations can be heard, seen, or read about at FurBearDefenders.com. Thank you for all of the help from our supporters, sponsors, and volunteers. We'll see you next year for the 2015 Living with Wildlife Conference.